Bosnia was just hammered. The capital city of Sarajevo was uh, under siege for almost four years. We say under siege, it's surrounded by mountains, and the Serbian army surrounded it and shelled the city and sniped the city. There was a place close to the church where we stay called Sniper Alley where they shot people. And so many people, they called it Sniper Alley. And hundreds and people, thousands of people were killed during those four years in Sarajevo. There's a cemetery I walked by again this summer that's dedicated to all the children that were killed in Sarajevo in the 90s. I walked by another cemetery and uh, with just massive tombstones and none, none have crosses. They're all these pointed things because they're Muslims and almost all of the tombstones have 1991 or 1993 or 1994 or 1995 for the date of death of young people and sometimes young adults and older adults who were killed during the war and are now in hell because they did not believe in Jesus. Not just because they did not hear about Jesus or did not believe in Jesus, but because they were sinners and were judged by God rightly so because of their sin. And if we get what we deserve, we will be in hell with them. So in Sarajevo, there are, being a capital city of Bosnia, there are many ambassadors there. Uh, ambassadors from other nations. You, sometimes you'll walk by an embassy. You can see the United States Embassy in Sarajevo. It's a massive compound compared to the other foreign embassies that are there. The British Embassy is close to the church we stay in and the Turkish Embassy is close to the church we stay in. And at those embassies or near those embassies, there will be ambassadors for those particular nations. And those ambassadors reside there as resident representatives of their nation, of the government of their nation, for a special or temporary time in that foreign land. Now, I mention that to you because the population of greater Sarajevo itself is 500,000. The urban population is less, but the greater population is 550,000. And up on a hillside in Sarajevo, there's a Baptist church where there are 40 ambassadors. When I say ambassadors, they are Christians like us, living in a foreign land. Yes, they were born in Bosnia, in Sarajevo, many of them. Yet they are ambassadors because their true home is heaven. And the true king they serve is not one of the presidents, the three presidents. You think we got problems. They have three presidents in Sarajevo. But their true loyalty is not to one of those presidents. Their true loyalty is the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are ambassadors. A city of 550,000 with 40 ambassadors from heaven on the hillside. And perhaps if you take into account the other evangelicals and missionaries in that city of 550,000, there might be 300 ambassadors for the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus. And then we think of Mount Carmel, Illinois, we think of a city of 7,000, very small in comparison. Yet in this room alone, perhaps if everyone knew the Lord here, we might have at least 200 ambassadors here just in this room not counting the other churches in this area, well, I suppose perhaps an estimate might be that we may have 1,000 true ambassadors of the Lord Jesus in Wabash County. I'm not sure. There's many more people than that that name the name of Jesus, but I'm not sure how many are true believers. So it, there's somewhat helpful of a contrast there and a picture of how blessed we are with gospel saturation. 
So that's why we go to Argentina or we send folks to Bosnia. I'm so blessed to be part of a church family that prays. I was telling somebody earlier this morning, they were asking about uh, our time in Sarajevo again, and I said, you know, we really can. People say this a lot. You, know, you ever be able to feel people's prayers? And truly, I, I, each summer that we went, we've been so based in prayer that I, I have felt prayed for and seen evidence and fruit of that as well. So that's why you go to Bosnia. You go by sending folks. That's why we go to other nations as well because as part of a Southern Baptist church supporting the cooperative program through your tithes and offerings even this morning, we send missionaries like Richard and Linda Swain whom we spent some time with this week in their home in Mostar. They're IMB missionaries that many Southern Baptist churches like ourselves support through our regular giving. That's why we go and we send and we pray so that those areas might be saturated with the gospel. Point is, is whether, whether here or whether there or in Argentina or Jacksonville, Florida, good to see Matt and Tara Horrell back with us this morning, visiting with us. Wherever it might be, our assignment as ambassadors for Jesus is to beg, implore, as it says in the ESV translation, to beg men on behalf of God to be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's our assignment. We are ambassadors for Jesus. Our true home is not here. Our true president is not, our true leader is not President Trump. Our true loyalty is to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to share with you this morning uh, a message that goes along with this statement I'm going to share with you that we are a serious church. We are a serious church because we have the, capital T-H-E, we are a serious church because we have the exclusive message of surpassing joy. And so the title of this message this morning is, is Joyfully Serious Ambassadors. Joyfully Serious Ambassadors. So I want to seek to answer that this morning. What makes us a serious church? What makes us serious ambassadors for the Lord Jesus? Well, I believe the text answers that question. We're serious ambassadors, number one, because we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation means that I'm not in a good relationship with somebody else. I'm at odds with somebody, and they're at odds with me. Two parties are not getting along well, and they need to be reconciled. They need to be brought together. They need to get along again. And the scripture here tells us in verse 18, it told Paul and it applies to us as well. Verse 18, all this is from God, look at your Bible, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Five times in these verses we've read this morning, the word reconcile, reconciliation, a form of that word is used. So what makes us serious ambassadors? We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Reconcile is a serious word. Not just because it's serious to be reconciled to someone else, but it's a serious matter of eternal weightiness that we must be reconciled to God. 
Reconcile is a serious church. So yes, we're a serious church because we're ministers of reconciliation. And the implications that we need to be reconciled to God is clear. That men are not right with God by nature. They're apart from God and enmity with God. Dead in sin and their default destination is not heaven but hell. It is a serious calling. We are serious ambassadors. Reconcile is a serious word. Verse 18 says this at the end of it. If you look at your Bible, he's gave us the ministry of reconciliation to Christ. It says before that, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. That means we were not reconciled to God. It tells us again in verse 19, it just the same thing is underlined for us. The first, look at the first part of verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. So that means us, verse 18. That means the world, verse 19, is not right with God. And we are ministers of reconciliation. You, right there, and I are ambassadors for Jesus. So that people might be reconciled to God and not be in this irreconciled state. When there are signs up in the woods when I go hunting, one sign I hate to see is no trespassing. Because it seems like there's always the grass is always green on the other side. It seems like that big buck is going to be right over there and I can't go there. Or there might just be a few more squirrels up in that oak tree over there. If only I could go across that line. But doggone it, there's a no trespassing sign there. Don't go across that line. And it tells us here in verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That means every single person in the world has trespasses against God. We have crossed a line we were not to cross. We have disobeyed God. Therefore, we are not right with God. We must be reconciled. Why must we be a serious church? Why are we serious ambassadors? Because we're ministers of reconciliation. Reconcile is a serious word. Trespasses is a serious word. God does not brush over those trespasses. They must be dealt with by a holy and just God. Reconcile is a serious word. Trespasses is a serious word. Therefore, beloved, we have a serious task. Amen? We are ministers of reconciliation. Verse 20 tells it, look at it. Therefore, in light of that, therefore, you see the therefore and therefore in verse 20? Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Notice what it says in verse 20. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We have a serious task. Out in front of my house, some men from the city were looking this week. The water runs down through the ditch in front of our house, and all this rain we'll be getting lately. My goodness, it's caused problems for all kinds of people. And there's a conduit going out on the entryway from my house, and, and uh, the water channels through that conduit. It just lays there. That's its job, is to be a conduit there so that water can go through it. It tells us here that we are basically a conduit for the 
the ministry of reconciliation. As ministers of reconciliation, we're, we're conduits. We, our job is so that the message of reconciliation might go through us. It says here in the scripture, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Romans chapter 3 verse 10 says, None is righteous, no, not one. None is righteous, no, not one. No one is right with God. And so, why does God appeal? You notice what it says here in the passage? God's making an appeal through us. God is appealing. I thought God's sovereign. Why does He got to appeal to anybody? It tells us we are to implore. We implore you to be reconciled to God. We beg you to be reconciled. Why well, we got to beg? Why is God making an appeal? Is He not able to do this? The implication here is clear. It tells us since in Romans 3.10, since no one, not one, no one is right with God, no one is righteous. Therefore, since we are, God's making His appeal and we are begging men that men, all men, no matter where they've heard of Christ and no matter where they live, all men are responsible before God. All men must be reconciled to God. They were responsible if they are not. Yet there's only one way to be reconciled to God. So one day in uh, Sarajevo, uh, if you go there, you're going to lose some weight because you're going to walk your socks off. You're going to walk everywhere. And one day I thought I would, uh, afternoon I'd walk to this place called Biel, Biel La Tablia. I'd heard of it but never walked up there before. And it's about an hour and a half walk to an old fortress, I don't know, maybe from the 1400s. A Turkish fortress. And so I walked and I walked and I walked and I sweated and I walked and I got to the very top. And right when I got to, top, to the top, from a different way, a car came through there and somebody was waving at me. I thought, who in the world knows me here in Sarajevo waving at me? Well, it's one of the students from the school and it's Holly and uh, Tim. And they're riding in a car to the top of the mountain waving at me. I mean, right when I got there, too, perfect timing, coming a different way. Now, I used that little illustration later in the classes. In the assembly times, I had the privilege of getting to share gradually uh, during the week, twice a day, different things that led up to a more explicit presentation of the gospel as it went along. And I shared with the students one day because as we talk with different students, uh, it becomes increasingly clear that they, uh, Muslim students, Catholic students, whoever they might be, basically they just want to believe that we all believe the same things are going to the same place. and They don't want to go get into it any further than that. Even after I shared one, one day, one of the men close to my age that was a student, him and his wife come, and they're Muslim, she wears the head covering and all that. Just, they, he liked me. He came up and talked to me. He said, I really like, I really like your talk. That's as much of a Bosnian accent I can give as a hillbilly from East Tennessee. I really, I really like your talk. You, what you say is really good. We really believe a lot of the same things. And I was like, no, we don't. And so the last, one of the days I shared this story about, you know, me going to the top of the mountain one way, they going the other way. And I, and I, and I just shared with them. I said, there might be many ways to get to the top of that mountain, but if, if God was on top of a mountain, of course, God's in heaven. There, there's only one way. There's only one way to be right with God. 
And that's through Jesus Christ. And you know, because you sent us and because you gave money or you prayed or whatever, uh, there's many people that heard that for the very first time. We were talking one night with a student. His name was, uh, well, I can't remember, Alex, Alan. And we were hanging out with some students, and Alan had the personality of Nick Foster. Just laugh, man. He'd laugh and laugh and had a big old time. He's a Muslim guy, but really not really dedicated to Islam at all. He'd talk and laugh, and basically he just wanted to, to think that we were, we were all on the same page and so forth and, and uh, all believe basically the same things too. Basically, uh, these folks needed to, needed to hear like Alan did. Uh, what I was going with the story of Alan is there was another guy, Luca, that was meeting there with us. And he was actually a Catholic. And, uh, but Alan, as we talked with Alan for a long time that night and listened to him as well and shared the gospel several times, and he mentioned his Catholic friends and Muslim friends and how he just wants to get along with all of them. He said, uh, we, I said at one point, I said, Alan, you ever heard what we're telling you before? And he said, no. I said, none of these Catholic friends or none of these other Orthodox friends ever shared this with you before? No. No, they hadn't. But because you give and you send and you pray, some, some are hearing for the first time. But it's with that kind of clarity that, that we must present the gospel to folks and come to vacation Bible school or whatever. They need to know that there is only one way to heaven, that's through Jesus Christ. One way to be reconciled, that's through Him. So before I move on, let me challenge you with one thing. If we're to be that conduit through which the we're minister, ministers of reconciliation, God's making His appeal through us, we need to be an effective conduit. And uh, that's why we have evangelism training like we're asking people to sign up for. And I really want to encourage you to do that, to be part of one of these evangelism training opportunities so that we can ring ever more effectively a, a clear a message of the gospel when we deliver that to other people. So yeah, are we a serious church? Better be. We have a serious message. We're serious ambassadors. And as I'm saying that, I'm standing up here surrounded by a monkey and a lion. Or whatever that thing is. Doesn't look so serious. We're trying to make things fun for the kids by our VBS decorations and so forth. And there were some observations about our Bosnian team while we were in Bosnia itself as we shared this serious message of the gospel. There were several comments about our, the folks, the five of us that went from our church, and we'd heard these kind of things in past years about there's so much love here. This, this place is so joyful. You're so glad. Uh, one student even commented after I spoke one morning, your message, you're so glad, you're so positive, you're so happy. And I thought, well, I, I, don't, I don't get that kind of comment. Usually the comment I get, you're too serious, Pastor. Um, but, but they sensed this, and that's the observation they observed. That's what people need to sense. Is they need to hear a serious message, and they need to hear a serious message that's affected us with joy, joy in the gospel. So what makes us joyful ambassadors? It's the message itself. It's the message itself. 
We're, we have a serious message because we've given, given the ministry of reconciliation and we have a joyful message because we've been trusted with the message of reconciliation. Again, verse 19 says, that is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So we've been entrusted with this message, a message that has impacted us. Now I say to our kids, and perhaps I don't know what your back porch is at your house, maybe it literally is the back porch, but that's the place for our kids to go work it out. You know what I'm saying? To go and be reconciled to one another. And usually the reconciliation is not going to take place until one of them takes the initiative and says, I'm sorry. When in fact many times it's more, I'm sorry. You say you're sorry, we can go back in the house. There's not really true reconciliation perhaps taking place at times. But often they're going to stay on the back porch a long time until someone is not stubborn enough to initiate some sort of pretense of reconciliation. This message of reconciliation that we present reminds us of this glorious truth that God took the initiative to reconcile us to himself. We did not take the initiative to reconcile ourselves to God to say that we're sorry, that we needed his forgiveness. A dead person doesn't even know he's dead, lest God show it to him. God took the initiative to reconcile us to himself. God did, and God did nothing wrong. We're the sinners. We're the ones not reconciled to God. But yet, look at what the Bible says in verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Now what does it say in verse 21, the beginning of it? For our sake he, God, the Father, made him who is him. That's Jesus. For our sake God made Jesus. Now, when it says God made Jesus, that doesn't mean God forced Jesus to do something that Jesus didn't want to do. When the Bible says God made Jesus, that means this was the Father's plan for Jesus to be the means and sacrifice and substitute through which we would be reconciled. God made him. God came up with this plan. In fact, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says, this was God's plan before he ever created the world, before the foundation of the world. So let's get it clear with the gospel. It begins with God, this holy God, and this God who took the initiative to reconcile us to himself. So one of the things that should bring us so much joy about this gospel is that this God who creates everything loves this world so much and loves us so much that he takes the initiative to do something about our greatest problem. That's to reconcile us with himself. Verse 18, you know, it tells us in verse 17, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. Isn't that a glorious truth, church? We see that in one another's lives, amen? How he's changed us. Verse 18, what does it say? Look at your Bible, first part of verse 18. You're looking at it, what's it say? About this glorious change that's taking place in Christ. What's verse 18 say? All this is from God. He does it. He does it, right? God takes the initiative to reconcile us to himself. Number two, God credited our sin to the one who knew no sin. God credited Imputed is another theological word that's good for us to have in our vocabulary. God credited our sin to the one who knew no sin. 
Those of us who are dads, fathers, we know all about labor, don't we? Well, we know a lot about it in our heads. Perhaps we were in the room when the child was born, but we have no experience with it. And when the Bible says here in this verse of Scripture, verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. What's that mean about Jesus? Jesus knew all about sin, but he had no experience with it. For he is God. He is holy. He is the righteous one. He had no acquaintance with sin, tempted yet without sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. We get a credit card bill, you get one, do you go back and check your credit card bill to see if there's been any fraudulent, fraudulent charges on your account? Every once in a while I'll see something I didn't know. Maybe the kids got a hold of something and punched some button on the computer and we got charged something from Amazon that we didn't know we was going to get. That happened not long ago. $7.99 for Amazon Kindle. What are you talking about? I didn't order no Amazon Kindle. I didn't know what you're talking about. Or whatever it was. So we check those accounts to make sure there's no fraudulent charges on there. The fact of the matter is, in our standing before God, our account before God, there's all kinds of charges on there that are against us, and not one of them is fraudulent. They're all true. They're all supposed to be there. I talked back to my mom. You've disobeyed your mother and father. I got angry. You're a murderer in God's sight. I had a lustful thought the other day. You've committed adultery in God's sight. Condemned before God. Charges all over your account. And there ain't nothing you can do to get rid of it. Not even a desire to get rid of it because you're dead in sin. Maybe a little regret and guilt because it's causing you problems in your life, but no conviction that this sin is against God unless God gives that conviction. But notice what the Bible says here in verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. What's this mean? Him who knew no sin is Jesus. And in his account, as one who takes on flesh, there is no charges in his account. False charges, right? Well, they accused Jesus of blasphemy and so forth. There are no charges on his account that can stand. But what has happened in the cross, because he's our substitute, is all the charges in our account were taken out and placed upon Jesus. Michael couldn't have read a more perfect passage of Scripture this morning than Isaiah chapter 53. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. But the Lord, <laughs> whoo, glory, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who did it? The Lord did it. He laid it on him. He put the iniquity, our iniquity, the charges in our account upon him. Isn't that good? God did that. He became our substitute. So, in Christ Jesus, our account is cleaned up. 
No charges. But that's not good enough. God doesn't just want a blank slate. He doesn't just want someone who has no sin there. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works. There must be righteousness. Therefore, God credits His righteousness to those who are in Christ. God credits Jesus with our sin, and God credits us with Jesus' righteousness. What a glorious exchange that is. We must be righteous. We must be right with God. What's the standard of right and wrong? Well, if you look out here in the world, you're going to hear, ain't our you know, world just plumb messed up, standing on its head. It's upside down. One person says this and one person says that, and everybody's truth. They say, well, let's just all agree to get along and not have any conviction about anything. Let's just tolerate everything. But God is the standard of righteousness. He's the standard of right and wrong, and none of us stand rightly with Him. Albert Pujols, I think, uh, was it yesterday? He hit a home run when he was playing against the Cardinals or something like that. Is he getting ready to retire or something? Is that what is going on? I don't know. No? Okay. Well, anyway, I heard something about it. Albert Pujols, I don't know how many home runs he's hit, but he, uh, he's hit a bunch of them. But he has his off days like anybody else. Sometimes somebody might say, a commentator might say about baseball player Albert Pujols, well, he's just not himself today. His swing's not, not just quite the same as it usually is. He don't seem comfortable in the batting box. But nobody can ever say of God, well, God's just not himself today. God's just having an off day. God never acts in a way that is not consistent with himself. God is inherently righteous. He's the standard of righteousness. I mean, intrinsically, inherently, he is right. That's just who he is. In his very nature, he is morally right. All that he does is right. He's also infinitely righteous. There's no beginning to the righteousness of God. He didn't start being righteous one day, amen? He's not going to stop being righteous one day, amen? He has been and always will be righteous. In fact, God will not increase in righteousness. We'll just behold throughout all eternity however increasingly righteous he is. But he will not increase in righteousness. He has been and always will be perfectly righteous. And what does the Bible say about us in Christ? So that, you look at your Bible, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. What? Think about that. The inherently, intrinsically righteous God looks upon us as he sees himself. Take that in. Take that in and swallow that in and let it go down to see that the Lord is good. God knows we have sinned, but He sees us as righteous as Himself. Does that mean we're righteous in practice? No. Even sitting here in the course of hearing this sermon, some of us have probably sinned in our thoughts. We're not righteous in practice. 
But in position, God chooses to see us and treat us as if we are as righteous as Jesus, and Jesus is certainly God. It says, the, look at your Bible, just look at your Bible right there. What's it say? It says, so that in him we might become righteous. No, it doesn't say that, does it? No, it says, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You can't be any more right with God than to have the righteousness of God. Amen? So that should make us joyful at all times. We are seriously joyful ambassadors, a joyfully serious church because of our unchanging identity in Jesus. Dan and I went on an anniversary trip not long ago. Went to Gettysburg Battlefield one day. And then I was telling the kids about it and watching something about the Civil War and the kids kept asking me about the blue and the gray and said, Dad, when they saw some gray uniforms on TV, they said, Dad, is that the bad guys? And I said, yeah. I'm from the South. I'm from Tennessee. My, my identity's wrapped up. I'm not for slavery and all that kind of stuff, but I, I had a hard... I said, like, yeah, they're the bad guys, sort of. You know, it's hard for me to eke out. But they were, we were on the wrong side there. You know, there's some states' rights stuff going on. A lot of my identity is wrapped up in where I'm from. I'm proud to be a hillbilly from East Tennessee. I'm, I'm proud to be an American. I sing it right along with Lee Greenwood, right? Proud of this and proud of that. This, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful to be married to my wife and my, have my four children and be a father and all those things are, are wrapped up in part of my identity. But all that could change in a moment. But not my identity with Christ. When I lose the job, when your girlfriend breaks up with you, your dog dies, you... You don't get the promotion. Your brother dies suddenly from a stroke. Your wife's killed tragically in a car accident. Your son says he hates you, or your wife says she's leaving you, or the accuser of the brethren says, don't you remember what you did last week or what you did 20 years ago? How can you be serving the Lord now? What I have to remember is, who am I in Jesus? My unchanging identity is in Christ. And it's in that, and it's from that, that'll lead me to just go out and slosh over on somebody. You know, just like an old bucket of water. Just be so filled up and full of the fact of what God's done for me in Jesus that I'll just go right out of this church and just slosh over on somebody. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you for this gospel, Lord, this good news. And Well, Lord, the fact of the matter is is there's people here in this room that need, need their eyes open to it. And Lord, I can't make it happen. And nobody here can. And if you don't open up their eyes, then they're going to perish forever without you.
And then, Lord, we got friends that live here in Mount Carmel and friends we've made in Argentina or in Jacksonville or over in Sarajevo in Bosnia, Lord. Lord, if you don't do something in their hearts, God, despite us, you making this appeal through us, Lord, then they're going to perish. And so we, we, we ask you, Lord, to, to do this. We pray, Father, that we would be faithful, faithful ambassadors of the Lord Jesus. Lord, that uh, our hearts would be affected by the truth of the gospel so much and that, that, Lord, we would be faithful to proclaim the gospel with much joy and with much weightiness and gravity and seriousness at the same time. So, Lord, draw whom you're going to draw for your glory and your name's sake. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, and we're going to sing, It Is Well With My Soul. You come this morning, if you want to come and pray about something or talk about something, you come, I'll be standing here. Uh, You come as God's speaking.
back and worship with us next Sunday. But also, don't forget about Vacation Bible School starts tonight at 6 o'clock. We hope you'll come and be a part of that if you bring some kids with you and so forth. Brother Tim Johnson, I think I saw your name is supposed to be praying for us. So uh, I guess you're going to be praying for us whether you are or not. But Come on and close us in prayer, Tim. And if you're here this morning and, and uh, you have questions about anything, about your relationship with God or need prayer about something, now I'm going to be standing at those back doors. I'd love a chance to meet with you, talk with you for a minute. We can set up a time to talk more later if we need to. But, but I invite you to do that. Uh, glad you're here today. Brother Tim. Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you uh, for the safe return of our Bosnia team back home, the good things that we've heard so far and the good things that we've yet to hear uh, that you've done there. And so, God, thank you for working in that way. God, we just want to thank you for taking our sin and paying the penalty for it, the thing that we deserve, God, you died in our place for that. God, thank you for that reminder. As we go, help us not forget uh, the great mercy that you have shown us. All this we ask in Jesus' name. What is the gospel? It all begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, to rule over the garden. God told them they could eat from any tree that they wanted to in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was perfect in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with the land, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with God until they chose to rebel against God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it brought about separation between them and God. Man has always tried to bridge the separation on his own terms and in his own strength. Whether it's building a ladder of morality and trying to be good enough for God, or even in the Old Testament example, when men built a tower into the heavens trying to reach God on their own. A more contemporary example comes from 1961, when the Russians were first successful in sending a man into outer space. Upon returning, the Russian cosmonaut remarked, we have been to space and we didn't find God or heaven there. A popular professor and author, C.S. Lewis, responded to the Russian cosmonaut. He said that looking for God in outer space is kind of like Hamlet, one of the characters in Shakespeare's plays, looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his home. Lewis said that for Hamlet to have a relationship with Shakespeare, Shakespeare would literally have to write himself into the story. That is the gospel. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible says that Jesus, in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies, was born of a virgin. Even as a child, he lived a perfect life. At the age of 30, he began his public ministry. He attracted followers. For three years, he taught, he healed, and he made bold claims, such as saying that he alone was the only way to God. The religious and political leaders did not like these teachings. They invoked a riot against Jesus. They brought about false accusations leading to a trial and to a sentencing of death by public crucifixion. The Bible says that while Jesus hung on the cross, that God placed all of the sin of all of mankind on Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
They took Jesus down from the cross and they put him in the tomb. They rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb so no one could get in or out. There were Roman soldiers who were posted on guard to keep people from coming to take Jesus' body. But on the third day, according to scripture, he rose again. After being seen by many eyewitnesses and giving instruction to his followers, he ascended back into the heaven where he now sits at the right hand of God and serves as our advocate before the Father. So what does this have to do with you? The Bible says that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of God's standard of holiness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no way to get rid of the burden of sin on our own. God calls all men everywhere to believe in Christ, repent of sins, and trust Christ to live a new life. As we look back and believe in what God has done through the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, as we repent and turn from our sins, as we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. So let's review. It all begins with God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day. As we believe in Christ, repent from our sins, and trust Jesus for new life, we have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel.